Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. January 19th, 2001. Puente Grande Prison, Mexico. In the late evening hours, 43-year-old drug lord Joaquin Guzman Loera chuckled to himself as he changed out of his prison uniform. For nearly a decade, he had been confined to one of Mexico's toughest prisons. Now, he was planning his escape. As he sat and waited, a knock on his cell door meant it was time. Wearing his street clothes, the man known as El Chapo opened his cell door to find two prison guards. One carried a mattress, the other a fresh white sheet. No one paid any attention as the three men headed down to the ground floor and walked straight into the infirmary. Even though inmates weren't allowed in here unsupervised, the bribes El Chapo dealt gave him free reign. Once inside, El Chapo hugged the two men and thanked them sincerely. It was the end of the road for them. He was on his own now. After climbing into a laundry cart, a guard wheeled him past the gate and towards a parked van. Once the coast was clear, he hopped into the trunk and was driven off. At least, that's one version of the story. This escape and many more only added to the growing legend of El Chapo, one of Mexico's most dangerous drug kingpins. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Podcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first of three episodes on Joaquin Guzman Loera, the infamous Mexican drug cartel boss known as El Chapo. Born in Sinaloa, one of Mexico's poorest villages, El Chapo worked his way up from the bottom, revolutionizing the drug trade and buying off much of the country's power structure. He became one of the most powerful and dangerous men in Mexico, and his power stretched around the world. This week, we'll get to know El Chapo as he built a reputation as a drug trafficker at the same moment when the Colombian cartels were losing power and opening a path for Mexican cartels to take their place. We'll dive into the rise of El Chapo right after this. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It was a regular November evening in 2007 at the Las Palmas restaurant in Culiacan, the capital of the Mexican state of Sinaloa. Local families and groups of friends dined on generous plates of steak and fresh seafood hot off the grill. But everything changed in an instant when a group of gun-toting men strolled calmly through the front door. The people of Culiacan were used to violence. Sinaloa had been a hub for the cartels for decades. Everyone knew the city was practically run by these so-called narcos. The diners looked around in fear that this might turn into another bloody massacre. But to their relief, one of the gunmen explained that there was no bloodshed on the agenda tonight. Their boss was about to come have dinner. The rest of the patrons were to hand over their phones and stay right where they were. As long as they did as they were told, they'd be free to leave once the boss finished eating and he would cover their bills for their trouble. Moments later, a casually dressed, short, stocky man walked through the front door. Everyone in the restaurant immediately recognized him. El Chapo, the Spanish word for shorty because he was only five foot six inches tall. The 50-year-old was Sinaloa's most famous son, a revered folk hero and one of the most powerful cartel bosses in all of Mexico. The diners were surprised to see El Chapo in the flesh. Not only was his very appearance unexpected, he'd been on the run from the authorities for years. But no one expected him to look so normal. Narcos were supposed to be kitted out in designer suits and flashy jewelry. But El Chapo looked just like one of them in his t-shirt and jeans. More shocking, though, was how friendly he was. The boss went around the room, introducing himself to everyone, trying to put them at ease. Ordinary Mexicans saw him as a celebrity, a persona El Chapo wanted to cultivate. Though he wanted to be respected and admired, he also just wanted to be liked. El Chapo spent the next few hours dining with his friends and associates in a private back room. Meanwhile, the diners out front waited to leave. They murmured to each other about how charming the narco boss was. They'd heard stories that he cared about the local people, and now they'd seen for themselves that it was true. To them, it seemed like the way the military and the DEA were targeting him was unfair. 
He was just a simple man trying to make a living. Finally, El Chapo and his men finished their meal. And true to his word, he paid for everyone's meals and let them all go unharmed. The experience solidified their loyalty. In the days that followed, everyone there whispered about what had happened at Las Palmas restaurant. Eventually, word that El Chapo was in Culiacan reached the ears of the government. And when law enforcement came knocking, the people denied ever encountering the kingpin. Even the restaurant staff said it was just a fanciful rumor. None of them wanted to get the boss in trouble. Though the people at Las Palmas probably didn't know it, this wasn't the first time El Chapo had done this. He regularly dropped into restaurants around the country for dinner and paid for everyone's meals, winning hearts and minds in the process. It was one of the strategies that helped him stay out of the authorities' grasp for years and made him a force to be reckoned with. Well, that and his willingness to kill anyone who crossed him, challenged him, or threatened his freedom. While El Chapo was putting on a show for the people of Culiacan, they were right to think he was one of them. Though much of the information about him is muddled by rumors, folk legends, and even lies meant to protect corrupt officials, one very real fact about El Chapo is that he was a son of Sinaloa. Joaquin Guzman Loera was born on April 4th, 1957, in a tiny Sinaloa village called La Tuna de Barirawato. La Tuna, as it was known, was in the middle of nowhere in the mountains of Sinaloa. The rugged Sierra Madre mountains were notoriously difficult for governments to control. From the time the Spanish invaded the area in the 16th century, the Sierra developed a reputation for lawlessness and violence. By the 20th century, the Mexican government had all but abandoned the region, leaving the communities impoverished. The area had no potable water, no sewage system, no hospitals, no public resources of any kind. The mostly agrarian people were forced to fend for themselves. El Chapo's father was a farmer, like most people in the Sierra, and by the 1950s, he and other farmers discovered that there was more money in cultivating marijuana and poppies than ordinary vegetables. In no time at all, the region became a major supplier for Latin American drug traffickers, which primarily sold to the United States. At the time, the U.S. hadn't declared its so-called war on drugs. Cannabis and heroin trafficking weren't a big issue up north. And in Mexico, the drug industry was practically considered a legitimate business. As a result, Mexican drug bosses of the 1950s and 60s were seen as respectable. Some were from already powerful families, while others used their new wealth to become part of the country's political and social elite. But El Chapo didn't grow up among elite traffickers. Like most children in the Sierra, he and his siblings had to work the fields with their father much of the year. Because there were no schools in the area, only traveling teachers, El Chapo stopped his formal education around the third grade. Instead, all that mattered was helping the family earn money and put food on the table. As the oldest of seven, El Chapo often accompanied his father to the towns where he'd sell his crops to the bosses. After business ended, 
He tagged along as his father went on drunken binges, spending much of the money he just earned on sex workers and booze. The boy was simultaneously infuriated and captivated. He lost respect for his father for contributing to their poverty, but he also wanted to be able to enjoy his own money too. Money meant freedom, and young El Chapo felt like a prisoner without it. His father's vices weren't the only reason El Chapo hated him though. It's said that the older Guzman brutally abused his wife and children. The abuse may have awakened El Chapo's own brutality, and it was amplified by the violence in the mountains. In their community, violence was par for the course, and masculinity meant aggression. Disagreements between neighbors regularly turned deadly. Boys grew up believing the only way to survive was to take whatever they wanted because no one would give it to them. And with no opportunity for a proper education, El Chapo came to believe that in order to escape poverty, he would need to become just as violent and selfish as his father. As the inner rage simmered, El Chapo told himself he was different. He swore that he would do whatever it took to gain his independence and earn enough money that he'd never have to worry about being poor ever again. And he realized there was no reason to wait until he was a man. The first step, growing his own cannabis. By 1970, 13-year-old El Chapo had managed to cultivate a plot of his own marijuana crops. He secretly sold his product when he went to town with his father, which only reinforced his belief that money would set him free. As he got older, El Chapo and his brothers and cousins started to work together. They built relationships with the buyers who represented the trafficking bosses and figured out ways to grow their outfit. El Chapo also channeled the brutal lessons of his childhood into the enterprise. If anyone stood in his way or tried to stab him in the back, he didn't hesitate to punish them. Though we don't know when he first took another life, as a teenager, he was already gaining a deadly reputation. Around the same time, the drug trade was changing. In 1973, Richard Nixon established the DEA, which would declare war on drug traffickers from Latin America. Three years later, the DEA teamed up with the Mexican government to go after heroin production, targeting the poppy farms in Sinaloa. Suddenly, drug trafficking in Mexico was a criminal enterprise. Many of the businessmen who'd been in charge before weren't interested in becoming brutal criminals. This opened up opportunities for ambitious young men with nothing to lose, who were willing to take big risks for big profit. El Chapo knew that if he wanted to make something of himself to get out of the Sierra, he would have to become even more ruthless and savvy. Luckily for him, he caught the attention of one of the most important criminal bosses in the country, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. Coming up, El Chapo becomes a full-time narco. Now, back to the story. By the late 1970s, the Mexican drug trade was undergoing a dramatic change. With the United States now actively seeking to stop the flow of drugs into the country, the once respectable, quiet industry was now criminalized. Only the ruthless would be able to survive. 
for small-time cannabis and opium farmer Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, it was the perfect opportunity to make a name for himself. El Chapo realized he'd never be able to achieve his dreams of wealth and independence if he stayed a farmer. He started working his connections to find an opportunity in another part of the industry. A Sinaloan trafficker named Hector Palma Salazar, known as El Guero, recognized El Chapo's potential. Sometime during the late 1970s, he hired him to move product from Sinaloa to the U.S. border. Knowing he had nothing to lose and everything to gain, El Chapo threw himself into his work. He streamlined the processes in order to move more product more quickly. And he developed an intolerance for mistakes. If something went wrong, El Chapo simply shot the man responsible. His approach paid off. It didn't take long for word about this ambitious, ruthless young man to work its way up to the upper echelons. By the early 1980s, when he was in his mid-twenties, El Chapo had risen through the ranks alongside his boss, El Guero. El Guero had bet on the right horse, and El Chapo got a front row seat to watch the consolidation of the industry. Before long, the entire Mexican drug world answered to a savvy and well-connected former policeman named Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, known as El Padrino. Felix Gallardo had a vision to transform the various Mexican trafficking groups into a single, unified cartel. And by the early 1980s, his Guadalajara cartel controlled almost all of the drugs smuggled out of Mexico. El Chapo was eventually introduced to Felix, who'd heard the stories about the younger man's effectiveness and his cold brutality. Felix needed someone to manage the logistics for shipments coming into Mexico from his new Colombian associates. With his signature combination of intelligence and violence, El Chapo seemed like just the man for the job. As far as El Chapo was concerned, this was the opportunity he'd been waiting for. With this job, he'd be able to really prove his value to all of the bosses, as well as learn from those with more experience. He eagerly accepted Felix's offer. When El Chapo joined Felix, the cartel was beginning to shift their focus from Mexican cannabis and heroin to Colombian cocaine. As the DEA cracked down on cocaine shipments flying into Florida, the Colombian cartels turned to a different tactic, smuggling their drugs into Mexico, then across the border into the U.S. For the Mexican smugglers, this meant money. Their cut of the cocaine profits was exponentially more than they'd earned from other drugs. El Chapo was perfectly positioned to learn all the details of the smuggling operation. Working alongside his old boss, El Guero, he learned about managing flights, boats, and trucks. He picked up tricks for how to evade the DEA, and he learned about the system of bribing Mexican officials. By the mid-1980s, El Chapo had achieved his goal of financial independence. More importantly, he discovered a world he could never have imagined back in the Sierra, a world of powerful men who could afford nearly everything they wanted. El Chapo idolized his bosses. He wanted to be like them, the power and wealth. 
the ability to act with impunity. He emulated his bosses by flaunting his newfound wealth, partying with his friends, and brutally cracking down on anyone who crossed him. He also learned the importance of relationships. The Mexican drug industry may have become a criminal empire, but it still had something in common with the legitimate business world. Making friends was just as important as crushing enemies. Anyone could pay off a corrupt official, but El Chapo had a distinct advantage in one area. He was charming and charismatic. He knew how to make people feel comfortable like he cared about them. For those in positions of power, he wasn't just paying a bribe, he was bringing them into the fold. El Chapo's charm didn't stop with officials, though. He also made a point of bringing opportunities back to his hometown in the Sierra. He built a big house for his mother and put money back into the community. Though he was still a second-tier drug boss, he was already developing a devoted fan base among regular people in Sinaloa. As the years went on, though, El Chapo wasn't content. He wanted more. More money, more power, more control, more fans. He didn't want to just be a cog in the machine. He wanted to be the machine. And the only way to do that was to stand out even more. He needed to get creative. By 1987, the 30-year-old El Chapo had continued to impress his bosses and was now managing almost all the trafficking across the western half of the U.S.-Mexico border. He was determined to figure out more efficient ways to smuggle drugs into the U.S. He wanted to move higher quantities at lower costs, but also increase their success rate at getting drugs across the border safely. The risk of arrest was high with trucks and planes, meaning they could only move small amounts reliably. So, El Chapo decided to think outside the box. He struck deals with food producers in Mexico and started hiding drugs inside their legitimate shipments. He built relationships with the distributors at oil companies and moved his product inside their tankers. He even established warehouses in the U.S. in order to process and distribute the drugs on the other side. This didn't always work flawlessly. In one famous incident, the DEA seized 1,400 cans of pickled jalapeno peppers from a packaged food company in the border town of Tecate. Inside, they found more than seven tons of cocaine. Unfortunately for them, they couldn't officially trace it back to El Chapo. The raid was a blow to El Chapo's operation, but not as much as the DEA might have hoped. They didn't realize that the innovative trafficker had developed a far more efficient and effective method of moving his product, one that was right under their noses, literally. Always looking for ways to bypass the authorities, El Chapo had hired an architect to build tunnels from Mexico to the U.S. For years, traffickers had used gopher hole-style tunnels just big enough for one man to crawl through with a backpack. But El Chapo had a better idea. His tunnels were reinforced with concrete walls and were big enough to drive a truck through. They were outfitted with lighting, air conditioning, carts, and elevators. 
Tons upon tons of drugs were loaded in through a warehouse in Mexico, moved underground across the border, and brought above ground into a warehouse in the United States. And the authorities were none the wiser. No one in the Mexican drug trade had developed an operation this sophisticated before. El Chapo's success earned him both millions of dollars and the respect of the more experienced traffickers. Unfortunately, as El Chapo was solidifying his place, the cartel was hit with a major blow. To be fair, they dealt the blow to themselves. In 1985, the Guadalajara cartel kidnapped, tortured, and killed a DEA agent. Despite Felix Gallardo's deep associations with the Mexican government, this was too much for them to ignore. By 1989, Felix and the cartel's two other top leaders were all in prison for murder. With El Padrino gone, his deputies divided up the country into their own territories. The era of a unified Mexican drug industry was over, and the era of cartel warfare was on the rise. Coming up, El Chapo goes to war with new rivals. Now, back to the story. In 1989, the Mexican drug world was turned upside down. Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo was arrested. Almost immediately, his top associates rushed into the power vacuum and divided up the country, creating regional cartels in order to bolster their own power. 32-year-old El Chapo was already highly regarded within the Guadalajara cartel. When Felix was arrested, El Chapo started working for Armado Carrillo Fuentes, who ran the border territory between Ciudad Juarez and El Paso. A less ambitious man might have been happy with such a placement, but El Chapo wanted more. He wanted Tijuana. Unfortunately, when the cartel's territory was divided up, Tijuana was given to some of El Chapo's old friends, the Ariano Felix brothers. Everyone knew that El Chapo was hoping to take advantage of the upheaval to gain more influence in Tijuana. But the Ariano Felix brothers wouldn't stand for it. There were seven of them, and they had four sisters too. The family wasn't about to give up their territory without a fight. The trouble supposedly started when one of the Ariano Felix brothers killed at least one of El Chapo's friends in 1989. Some reports say it was an intentional hit meant to send a message. Others say it was a drunken misunderstanding. Whatever the truth, El Chapo couldn't let the murder go unpunished. Not only did he have to avenge his friends, but he had to prove to the Arianos that he wouldn't be intimidated. But he couldn't just go after them. Even with El Padrino in prison, the Mexican drug world still had vestiges of its more respectable days in the 1950s and 60s. It was a business with rules and loyalty. The cartel bosses styled themselves after the Italian mafiosos, considering themselves gentlemen who adhered to a code. More junior members of their organization had to get permission from the bosses to commit any violence against rivals. El Chapo was given permission to go after the Ariano Felix brothers in order to avenge his friends. But the bosses clearly didn't realize what they were unleashing by giving El Chapo the green light. 
Once the first shot was fired, it was war. For the next two years, the two sides traded blows, dealing out murders in the streets of northern Mexico. The situation worsened in 1991 when a senior boss that the Arianos were loyal to was murdered. Whether or not El Chapo was actually responsible is unknown, but the Arianos assumed he was. In response, they reportedly murdered several of El Chapo's associates. Obviously, El Chapo retaliated. In late September of 1992, several of his men attacked members of the Ariano Felix family at a club in Puerto Vallarta, killing several innocent bystanders and four Tijuana cartel associates when it was all said and done. Their main target, Ramon Ariano Felix, escaped the massacre. Going after family crossed a line in the narco code. All bets were off now. The Arianos would strike back in kind. One afternoon in November 1992, El Chapo was driving through Guadalajara, where he had been hiding out since the Puerto Vallarta shootout, when a white pickup truck rammed into him from behind. Three men carrying AK-47s jumped out of it and lit up El Chapo's car. Miraculously, he managed to escape unharmed, but he'd seen his attackers, and he recognized one of them as Ramon Ariano Felix. El Chapo was livid. In his mind, everything up to this point had just been business, but this was beyond the pale. He reached out to the most senior brother of the family, Benjamin, who apologized for Ramon's action and claimed he'd gone rogue. Though El Chapo had escaped that incident with his life, all the violence was starting to cause other problems for him. Prior to this point, neither the DEA nor Mexican officials had considered him an important figure in the trafficking world. He might be ambitious and good at his job, but he was still very much a second-tier boss. But the trail of bodies he left in the streets couldn't be ignored. The more cartel violence spilled over into civilian life, the higher the pressure for the authorities to put a stop to it. And the overconfident El Chapo had left a paper trail. Authorities even discovered an SUV that was used to kidnap and torture family members of El Chapo's old boss, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, and it was found in front of a house owned by El Chapo's accountant. From there, it didn't take long for law enforcement to link the accountant to El Chapo and eventually Chapo's boss, Amado Carrillo Fuentes. By now, Carrillo Fuentes had become one of the most powerful drug lords in the country, and he was starting to realize that by kicking up so much of a fuss, El Chapo was becoming a liability. He would have to go. Even better if they could get the Arianos Felix brothers out of the way too. Killing them felt like a waste, but this violent feud was putting the entire industry at risk. Little did he realize an opportunity would arise for the two factions to violently put an end to their own war. On May 24, 1993, Ramon Ariano Felix was headed to Guadalajara International Airport. He knew El Chapo was hiding somewhere in the area and he was in town to hunt him down. Unfortunately, 
Ramon and his team had no luck, and they were on their way home to Tijuana. That same day, unbeknownst to them, El Chapo was on his way to the same airport. He'd been so securely hidden away that he wasn't even concerned about the hit. In fact, he reportedly was on his way to spend a few days partying in Puerto Vallarta. According to one version of the story, Ramon was already in the airport when he and his men got a call that El Chapo was arriving. They raced outside, spotted his car, and opened fire through the crowd outside the busy terminal. In another version of the story, El Chapo and his entourage had just pulled up to the airport when they were ambushed by cars full of armed men. El Chapo managed to survive by crawling from the car and into the terminal amidst the gunfire. He claimed that his men didn't even return fire because their weapons were packed away. Whatever the truth was, innocent people were killed, including a respected Catholic cardinal, Juan Jesus Posadas Ocampo. The official narrative was that the cardinal had been killed in the crossfire between the rival drug traffickers. Although years later, it was believed by some that the cardinal's death was staged by the police because he was too radical. Regardless, both the Ariano Felix family and El Chapo were horrified. The Arianos were deeply religious and couldn't believe they were being accused of killing a member of the church. El Chapo felt he was being framed, having not even engaged in the firefight. But it didn't matter. Suddenly, both El Chapo and the Arianos were forced to go on the run. When El Chapo tried to reach out to his bosses for help, they reportedly refused. Though he didn't realize it, it appeared they decided to feed him to the wolves. El Chapo headed south, taking full advantage of his connections in order to get to Guatemala. He continued on south into El Salvador, but by then, the word was out that he'd made it out of Mexico. The Salvadorans weren't interested in dealing with El Chapo, so they forced him back into Guatemala, where he was quickly arrested. The Guatemalan authorities tied him up, threw him in the back of a truck, and drove him up to the border, where they handed him over to Mexican police. On June 9, 1993, El Chapo was taken into police custody for the first time in his life. He had no idea what to expect, but he knew he'd do whatever it took and betray whoever he had to to get out as soon as possible. He was in for a steep and brutal learning curve, but he was determined to come out on top. After all, he always had. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out how El Chapo managed to grow his power while in prison and how his mysterious escape made him one of the most influential men in Mexico. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton. 